Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good afternoon, good morning, good night, entrepreneurship and leadership channel listeners on the New Books Network. I'm here today with my business partner and friend, Kimon Pontakidis, and our guest, Austin Mullinder, if I pronounce your name correctly. Austin, you've got so many different job titles in your LinkedIn description. Could you introduce yourself the way you normally do if you bump into a, a stranger or someone at a business networking meeting? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm at the stage in my career where um, I now have a, a portfolio of responsibilities. Uh, I sit on a set of um, group, typically growth company boards uh, where, you know, for me, I'm looking for, for teams which I have chemistry with and I have respect for. And when I look at the true north that they've set for themselves as a company, I think I can get excited about it and hopefully add value to. In many cases, I'm the chairman of the company, but it's not always that. Uh, the, the, they're typically tech companies, but not exclusively tech companies. So right now, uh, it's a combination of chairmanships, board advisory positions, and then also uh, young entrepreneur advisory positions. And it, it's across the UK, US and Europe. Good. So if you, um, do you, do you describe yourself as an entrepreneur? Yes, I do. I, I, I didn't, I hadn't earned that title um, for most of my career, um, but from an early age, uh, and from an early part of my career, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. But then my wife, Sally, and I had four kids pretty quick by the time we were 30. And I wasn't really in a position to take risks at that moment. And so I spent the first probably 20 years of my career in a kind of classic corporate world, working for medium and large companies. And then the day my youngest went to college, uh, I left a role which was then uh, I was an officer at Microsoft and I went to, to a pre-stage startup, pre-revenue startup, which would have been boy, 15 years ago now. And so pretty much everything I've done since then has been entrepreneurial. Wow, that's awesome. So how talk, talk a little bit about uh, about the uh, the career, though, up until that, like, was that? Sure. How, yeah, was that like, first of all, I mean, Microsoft was just the end or were you? Yes, yes. Yeah, I started, you know, I left um, university in the mid 80s. I'd never seen a computer and I knew I knew tech was coming. I just didn't know what it looked like. So I figured the best way would be to go sell computers. So I went to work <laughs> for um, what was then the kind of UK equivalent of IBM a company called ICL, International Computers Limited, which ultimately became owned by Fujitsu. And I went through what I would say is a tremendous um, graduate training scheme and overall training scheme. And I worked in the UK for probably six or seven years. Then I worked across Europe with the same company and then um, went to the US in the mid 90s. And so that was um, quite classic in the mid, at the end of uh, that period, around about 2000, Fujitsu gave me CEO responsibility for all of the, uh, what was then ICL assets in North America. Um, it was a pretty big turnaround. And for me, it was interesting. Um, you know, I went from being in quite a um, systematic corporate structure to one where 
you know, Fujitsu just said, hey, here's all these bits. We need you to turn it into a business. Um, they're collectively losing a lot of money. You need to fix that. And then they kind of left town. So the good news was I had a, uh, you know, I had the, the balance sheet of a very, very large parent. I had a series of a chairman who typically would, you know, I might see quarterly. Um, but I, other than that, I was on my own. And Sorry, how uh, old were you at this point? I'm just curious. Uh, 37 at that Wow. Point. Okay, so that's quite young to have something yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean, they took a big risk on me, I think. Um, and I, I think I uh, I think I paid them back. So it was kind of, you know, we went through this period where we had to sell off bits, downsize the business quite significantly, then grow it back up again. And then it, ultimately it became the, the Fujitsu retail solutions business globally. And I ran that for about five years. And we went from, I mean, <laughs> losing, I'll just say it was tens of millions a year when <laughs> I took it on to um, actually a profitable business before I then um, was headhunted into Microsoft. Okay. How, and how long were you doing? How long were you in Microsoft? Uh, about five years. And so that was definitely the most intense period of my life. Um, I was uh, I was a bit surprised actually when they first called me, and uh, initially I was I went Microsoft had this unbelievable interview process. I think it was twenty two corporate vice presidents. Oh my! God. I went through before I um, eventually met Steve Barmer, and the um, the role I went in for somewhere in flight they decided that I should take over the worldwide sales. Uh, responsibility for for all enterprise customers and uh, and also a culture change program Microsoft was going through a stage where um, they had a lot of kind of engineering focus on how selling was done and we needed to have much more art in the selling and so I was given this phenomenal opportunity which was to lead a culture change program for the sales force at the same time as running uh, all of the kind of global, you know, global accounts and stuff like that. It, it was amazing. And I loved it. So what this is really interesting and sounds really hard. Um, and I just like to focus on the culture change for the So I'm just even trying to imagine, like, the, sorry. And I'm going to ask, like, just ridiculously, like, sure. is that anything other than just replace them with somebody else because it's a is it easier to just like like i i just sounds very very hard to actually well yeah so i actually know it i mean the reality is microsoft um ha had and has a tremendous amount of very capable salespeople. however at the time the way they were managed was what i would call with science so you know, the, the view was if you couldn't measure it, it wasn't important. Um, it was all about pipeline coverage and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And actually, you know, what I was bringing to was really focused on, you know, the art of selling. How, how do you build trusted advisor relationships? What is the best way to manage, uh, you know, large accounts? Um, or, you know, classic soft sales skills. And um, I found a, you know, a very willing uh, set of salespeople who, frankly, had been waiting for, at that point, someone in court whose focus was on the customer first and, uh, and so on, rather than just license selling or whatever. And, and by the way, uh, I found that um, I got tremendous support from across the top of Microsoft 
Uh, we ran a very large culture change program, which had thousands of sales guys in it. Um, I had a I had a partner in that who was another corporate vice president, uh, Linda Zecker, and I think we're pretty proud of the work that we did. Amazing. That sounds. Yeah. Uh, and so, the move from Microsoft to sort of what is it, would it be correct to say angel investing or uh, is that what no? You're... So the so what happened was um, I'd been in Microsoft for about five years. I'd loved every minute of it, but. You know, I knew I was at the point where uh, I was a corporate vice president, but they were in charge. They weren't going to make me the COO and I wasn't going to get Steve Barmer's job. So, you know, I was effectively I was at the peak of where I was going to be in, you know, what is a wasn't is a tremendous organization. Um, and I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur. My youngest went I had four kids. My youngest went to college. And I left Microsoft. My wife and I went and traveled across Africa, climbed Kilimanjaro, did all kinds of fun stuff. And I joined a pre-revenue startup that I'd been advising uh, called Zios, which was um, aiming to put tablets on restaurant tables to do order, um, pay, and also play. And I can tell you the difference between being a corporate vice president in Microsoft and having no revenue and you know no cash was stark to say. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I'm going to jump in there. I, I, I want sure. to ask you to reflect a bit on the things you learned about sales because a lot of uh, sure. one of the big things that startups often don't have is anyone who's got a clue how to sell to large companies and sure. understand, understand. And so any, anything you can, just a couple of points you could share that things that maybe you realize that you don't think are widely enough understood about uh, you know key key things to remember when you're selling to large enterprises prizes but also uh, this, this business of taking the plunge into the sort of startup world if you've come from the comfortable even when you were in Fujitsu yeah. running this operation you did have a, a deep-pocketed corporate parent in the background and yes. um, re reflections on you know how, how you handled it and what other people should know of who are considering following in your footsteps. Sure well let me start with cash I mean I'd worked in um, Fujitsu, which had deep pockets, and then Microsoft, which had you know more cash than you can dream of, and has even more now. Um, you know, cash had never been an issue for the first twenty-five years of my career. I arrived in this startup on the understanding that ten million had been raised, and about ten minutes after I arrived, it hadn't been raised, and we were already out of cash. And so, um, you know, that was interesting because all of a sudden I'm, you know, writing checks for payroll with, I, I had a tremendous partner there who had founded the company and persuaded me to join Jack Baum. And, you know, we rushed around trying to raise money for a while, um, and were completely unsuccessful in raising it, you know, in Silicon Valley. Um, but eventually, um, we found a, a kind of high net worth angel who who took the bet. And once we had the money in, actually the business group grew pretty quickly. We went from, um, you know, no revenue and no user constituency. And within three years, um, we were we, we were processing, you know, billions of dollars a year through the Zeos network. We had about... 60 million people a month who would sit at a table in the US which had a Zeosk screen on it. And, and so that was very, very exciting. Are those the um, things that are in the airports? 
that you see. So the equivalent you do you see in the airports, iPads being used. That's yeah. a that's a different company actually that also owns the whole restaurant franchise. It does a great job, by the way. Similar thing. You you would see Zios in Olive Garden and places okay. like okay. So casual dining. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and so let's come back to selling for a minute. Um, you know, I think selling is, you know, the basic skills are the same anywhere. However, when, you know, if you're selling Microsoft, uh, you've got, you know, millions of users globally and quite a lot of your selling is renewing licenses and so on because almost everybody already uses your software. When um, we were trying to sell Zeosk, no one had ever put a tablet on a restaurant table before. And the decision that the large chains had to make is, were they going to bet on a startup that had that was going to put a device between them and their customer, and the you know the the initial chain cost was going to be tens of millions. Um, that's that's when I really learned about friction in selling. Um, I mean, essentially, you know the the use case that we were promoting, no, they weren't going to do it without a CEO's commitment. The um, typically because it didn't exist at the time, there was no budget. So it's definitely the, that's the toughest thing, you know, I've ever had to try and sell. And at that point you're, you know, whereas previously I didn't have to sell to anyone that my company was going to exist next week. Um, now you're trying to persuade very large, uh, in this case, casual dining, uh, typically public companies that, hey, not only are we, you know, smart and clever and all that, but actually we're going to be around, you know, two minutes after you deploy this stuff. So it's a completely different form of selling in the sense that you have to be compelling about, you know, your existence. And so that was uh, extremely challenging. Um, but ultimately, you know, the team was very successful. And, and obviously, you know, in a startup, it's it's about the team. It's not about an individual. So the, the team did amazingly in, in effectively creating that marketplace. And so what, what's the end of that story? Uh, like, how Well, you... so, so for me, it ended a little bit early. My, I'd been away, uh, although I spent a lot of time back in the UK, um, my parents were, were still there. And in my wife Sally's mum was still there, and you know, without dwelling on it, I we I needed to step down, go back to the UK, and spend time with um, particularly my mum. And and Sally wanted to be near her family as well. And so we made a decision. Okay, um, I spoke to Jack. Said, "Hey, um, I've got to move back to the UK. I'm not, obviously can't run the business from there." Um, Jack, who is my partner in business, took over Ziosk and is and is still running it today. Um, I then had a period of time kind of not, you know, looking after mum and so on, but focusing on, okay, I have, to, I have to build out a portfolio of responsibility now where I didn't have the bandwidth to do a full-time job. So that was, you know, almost kind of stage three of my career, moving from large corp to, um, to startup and then to sort of portfolio. And of course, I didn't know how that was going to work, um, but, you know, Obviously, in my corporate life and to some extent in the startup life, I built up a kind of very large network of people around the world. And it, it, the whole saying, what goes around comes around. Um, so I think, you know, I'd obviously been raised in a way that 
Um, you know, I always try and uh, respect and add value to all the people I know. I try and behave in a way which is consistent with the way I would like to be treated. And it turns out I had a lot of um, people out there who were keen to take advantage of my, um, of who I am, who I know, and then, you know, my ability potentially to guide young, particularly growth growth CEOs, early stage startup, early growth CEOs. And within a year or two, I found that I had some private equity board work, but I had three or four companies that I was chairing that I'm very passionate about. And typically I was the founding uh, board member. And in one case, there's a business that I'm engaged in in the UK called 501 Fund, where I'm actually one of the co-founders. So this is this is like the dream. Um, I get to work with fantastic young CEOs, and but the buck stops with those guys, not with me. And they know it, and I know it. And as long as I'm adding value, then I'll have a then I'll have. But a are you are you investing in these companies, or are you in yes. all of these companies? You invest in every one of the. Uh... Well, no, not sometimes. It, sometimes it wasn't necessary. So if there's, yeah. I would say in two thirds of the cases, yes. Um, the way that the, the business operated in some cases, it, it wasn't needed. And, I, and typically you've got um, businesses where there's a very smart uh, CEO, founder, tip, may, maybe a technical co-founder, um, and there's become, been a kind of a bootstrap startup. In one of the cases I've, I've um, helped take that to a point where it's now got venture backing, um, another one's angel backing. Um, one is completely self-funded by the founders. And then the one I'm co-founding, um, it was profitable immediately. And we didn't need to raise any um, capital at all. So what what do you try to do? Are, are you, I mean, sorry, is this your typical traditional sort of like you're taking it through various uh, funding stages and then you're exiting at a stage? Or are you trying to like, what's the what's what's the yeah. playbook? So I don't think there's anything, um, they're all pretty different. You know, one's in Finland, one's in Scotland, one's in London, one's in Dallas in terms of HQ. Um, three, are, three are very tech focused, but different types of tech. One is uh, in the kind of um, competitive social space for venues. Um, and at the, at the moment, in each case, the focus is just building great businesses that are differentiated, fast growing and are self-sustainable. Um, in each of the cases, uh, we're kind of looking at we don't need money, but sh should we take money because it could, you know, supercharge growth, um, which is a nice place to be in. Um, so it's not. We're not out there kind of desperately trying to raise cash because otherwise we have to close the doors. We're out there going, okay, you know, the, the CEOs and their teams are doing a great job. The businesses are growing nicely. Um, you know, it, it then becomes a strategic decision. Do we want strategic capital to supercharge growth and bring in the right type of strategic partners or not? So this is interesting. I, I'm trying to like get my head around what, like, is it like a, a like a, 
Is it almost like a home office, like a family private equity or like, like something where you are, you're happy. It's like, it's nice. You don't have the pressure. You don't have these outside investors pressuring you to do, to yeah. do anything basically. But so, I, I mean, is, is, is the long game, you're just going to have successful profitable businesses and whatever, just sh- yeah. everybody shares in the residual profits of that or. Um, yeah. I mean, so it, 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 it differs and, uh, and, and I, and I want to be clear that in the, in the ones where I, I'm a founding chairman, but not the founder. I mean, it's the, you know, I, I will guide the founders, but it's that, you know, I'm not trying to drive that decision for them. And there's, they've, they've each got kind of multiple forks in the road, which could include strategic investment, divestment, public companies. And um, they're early enough in their growth phase that they're not trying to rush to those answers. Okay, I see what you're saying. Business that I um, co-founded, uh, the 501 Fund business, I mean, it's it's got more headroom than anything I've ever seen. And um, right now we're just, and, and it, by the way, we kind of tested it pre-COVID, then we had to put in mothballs for COVID. <laughs> we only came out into the market, um, you know, July of last year, and it's like a rocket ship. Um, and it, it, the beautiful thing about it is um, young CEO who is phenomenal and has always been an entrepreneur, interestingly. So I can bring quite a lot of um, scaling experience to him. But, um, you know, he's, a, he's tremendous and, and he's part of an entrepreneur fam, family of entrepreneurs who are all very, very strong. And so that one, we're just going to we're just going to run with it. It's gone global very quickly. Um, what's it called? What's it, what's it called? It's called 501 Fund. And, and essentially, we're putting um, technology into venues uh, that, for example, augmented darts or augmented oh, shuffleboard cool. or whatever, um, very differentiated. It's great for the guest. It's great for the venue. It's, it's a very nice business for us. And the, one of the biggest things I learned in my time at Ziosk was um, understanding when you're building a startup, um, how can you build a business that has the least amount of friction between you and revenue and is as if you can get the combination of being both differentiated but very simple to deploy and simple to manage that is like the that's like nirvana um and so i'm very very focused on each of these businesses uh how can we make it as simple as possible to grow user constituency and to support those businesses in an ongoing way while still having something that's unique from us and high value for the customer Mm. And if you think about your what you want to get out of this, you you mentioned a couple sure. of times it was when your when your kid got out of college or into college and you yeah. felt you could take more risk. So obviously, yeah. at, at some level, you you weren't that keen on risk at that stage. But now it's nice to put four kids through private college in the USA. Um, you don't even want to know what that costs. So no, that's yeah, a million my, bucks. <laughs> uh, yeah. So my my priority in my corporate years was, you know, to keep growing as a, in my capability, but it was, um, you know, family. 
Yeah, so, no, yes, I, I, I was going to, going to sort of assume yeah. that, but in terms of what you're doing now, what you wanted to get out of being an entrepreneur, like yeah. you, the, the pressure was off. Now you could, like, in a sense, Austin comes first. Now it's about a bit of me time. Um, sure. But where, where's this taking you? I mean, are you enjoying the process so much you could carry on without an exit, or do you do you? Because some people are very financially motivated. Other people, it's fame and glory. Other people, it's significance and legacy. And like, if you're sure. trying to think. What do you care? And there isn't a right or wrong answer from our point of view. Just we're really curious what drives you to get up in the morning and yeah. and where, where's where's it taking you? Yeah. So um, first of all, in the the private equity um, work that I've done on on um, you know private equity boards, there's absolutely a focus to make a return for the fund and exit. And in fact, one of the ones that I joined. Three years ago, we just had a very, very successful exit. So that that creates, you know, some of the um, payback, if you like. Uh, but for me, yeah, it's certainly not about fame and glory. For, for me, success would be particularly um, the four CEOs who are and their teams that are running these companies. You know, for me, if they can self-actualize what they want to achieve, and I have a very good idea of what that is in all four cases, um, then A, I will feel like I've really achieved something um, in support of, 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 these, of these folks. And at, the, and at the same time, if they do self-actualize, my interest in the business means it will be a pretty good outcome for me as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying the journey a lot. It, it's it's great that I can do it from anywhere and COVID's actually made that even easier because almost everything now you can do uh, online now. By the way, I'm a big believer in human contact and building personal relationships and so on. But I, I can do what I do from pretty much anywhere. Like when I'm in California and I'm working with the guys in Europe, I just get up very, very early. And then, you know, there's some point in the day where the days for me and my wife, Sally, and so on. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's a pretty good existence. Let's put it like that. But I mean, I am living the the stresses and strains of the, the companies, but not in a way that it's existential for me. Um, I'm trying to support the people for whom it's existential, if that makes sense. <laughs> then, then it's the place to be. It's the place to be. <laughs> well, yeah, it's you know, it's um, it's been a a long yeah, part. Part by the way, I should be clear. My wife's been unbelievable for a long, long time, and so part of it is in a good uh, way or in a good way or a bad way. We're online, by the way. We are recording. Yeah, no, in a in a good way. She's been spectacular, and so um, I can't just work twenty hours a day for my whole life, and so for me. Um, this is a time where we can kind of do interesting things in interesting places. While I'm, I'm still highly, you can probably tell I'm still highly motivated with uh, the work that I'm doing. Um, but, but I have, I, I would say I have a pretty good work-life balance. Let's put it like that. Do you, uh, do you accept like if there's somebody listening to this? I mean, are you, are you like, how, is it? Do people, if, if they want to get in touch with you or if they, like, how do they use, like, uh, sorry, are you available for an, a, a chairmanship or invariable potentially opening doors for people? Like, or like, how do you, do you have a process even for, for yeah. looking for, for, for companies? Be, and so, so to be honest, I have a lens. Um, so I have a very clear lens, which is, you know, number one, you know, I have to feel chemistry with whoever it is that I'm going to be working with. 
and I have to like them. I have to think, okay, this is going to be a fun ride, yeah? And then number two, you know, I look at what it is that they're trying to build, and I'm like, okay, can I get excited about that? And, and then do I think I can add value to that journey rather than, you know, can I just climb on board and watch someone else, you know, do right. it? Um, and then if, if, you know, if those two things are right, then typically, you know, I, I have a kind of reward model uh, where, you know, my point is I want to do this. I want to help. I don't want to be greedy, but I'm also not a charity. So, and, and one, of, one of the things I say to the founders is, look, I think it's important that I have skin in the game, whether that involves an investment or not, because, you know, I've got several balls in there and, and, and you know, you want my motivation to be natural. Um, and, and, and then what happens is, um, things, I just got to the stage where things come to me, people introduce me and say, Hey, there's this company, it's in this market. You have a, a set of insight and a network that could be very interesting. And so I talk to a lot of people and by the way, I don't want to pretend that everyone I talk to wants to say, Hey, please come and be my chairman. It, it doesn't work like that. Um, but some do. And, um, some of them I've known for years and years and years, and some of them, you know, I get introduced to, and I, and I didn't know before. Um, so it's, it's, um, I think there's a lot of serendipity to it, but when the serendipity, you know, comes my way, I have a pretty clear lens that I use to decide this is going to make sense for me and the, and the other partner. Okay. So there's not a, like, you don't have like a, yeah, like there's no, I don't know. You don't have like an office or someplace. Where I know I, I, I'm like not that. doing outreach. I yeah. mean, it's all, it's all kind of, it's all kind it's of all personal in- relationships and just yeah. based on who, you know, and, 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 and yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the interesting things about having worked at, at Microsoft at a, you know, pretty senior level is in the, in the cloud world, um, in, you know, in Google, in, in Amazon, in Microsoft and so on, the number of people who were in Microsoft when I was in Microsoft who are very senior in these businesses is phenomenal. Um, there's a lot of moving about. It means that, you know, I have a pretty good network in that whole sort of cloud world. And obviously cloud is, you know, very central to the future of, of tech. So um, I'm able to work with a lot of people that I know and love and have known for years and years in a way that's, you know, bringing value both to them in whatever role they're in now and, and the and the businesses that I represent. So has the Microsoft, let's say, um, alumni or whatever, yeah. has that been that has that been a valuable Huge. asset? Yeah. And Huge. and have yeah. you is there any like direct connection between any of the companies you've invested in and yeah, sure. So um in in Scotland, I'm um involved with this company for it. It's run by Peter Proud, who is just and a tremendous entrepreneur. And by the way, his one of the keys to his success is the way he's using university apprentices. I mean, it's it's absolutely game changing. And um, I've known Peter for 20 years. Um, and uh, so that one was, you know, an, an easy uh, move. We, we know each other and we trust each other. And um, he's building a, a tremendous business. Um, the, the, the 501 fund in the UK, I met the guys through Ziosk when, when we were looking to work together some years ago. And when I got back to the UK, they reached out to me. Um, the, um, and then the other two were just kind of serendipitous. The other two that I chaired were, were, were just introductions that, that made great sense. 
And there's a lesson here for, for people listening. If even if you're a 17 year old working in a working in the kitchens in a restaurant, is these are relationships that you can you maybe you get to meet the you meet the owner, stay in yeah. touch with them. That you never know. Just your 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 personal network and your relationships are not given to you on a plate. But if for you sure. if you get to know and trust people and they trust you you never know when that's going to go it's nice for your life anyway and it might be useful i suppose as well yeah you know it's it's interesting one of the when i was um involved in running the culture change program at microsoft um i used to do boy this was this was 12 12 15 years ago i would do podcasts on a probably 15 to 20 minute podcast once a month on different subjects um, one of the most popular ones was was on the art of being a trusted advisor. And we turned that into a session, which was an hour session that I ran a couple of times at the massive, you know, Microsoft sales conference called MGX, where they have like 15, 20,000 people come along. Um, I would say that that is the, you know, it, you know, I kind of encapsulated my kind of 10, 10 things that differentiate the people who build the best trusted advisor relationships. And, you know, that became something that went kind of across um, Microsoft, you know, very effectively, I think. And I, you know, I do try and practice what I preach. So, you know, if you said, what's the, the kind of single thing that has been my true North for how to operate forever, it's, it's, building trusted advisor relationships and and personal trusted advisor relationships, not just professional ones. I agree with that. I'm a big believer in the value of personal relationships. And I actually think that uh, even more so in this post pandemic time, um, you know, I think there's more and more need. Like I said, I think the people that can get out in front and actually, you know, develop and maintain those relationships are always going to have, it's always an advantage. But um, anyway, so in terms of, you know, if you could, you, you've seen a lot of, you have a lot of experience in looking at um, yeah. like startups and like entrepreneurs, actually, uh, people who, yeah. like you said, they're, they have these ideas and they want to set things up. What would like, what do the winners look like? What are the, or the I hate to use the word winner. That's such a bad word. Yeah. Uh, like this, what, what are the successful, like, what? Do, can you, what are the characteristics? What does it take to actually be successful? And again, I'm thinking, I'm conscious of people that are listening, thinking like, do sure. I have what it takes? What does it take? Like, yeah. I'm just curious from your perspective, what does it take? So for, for an entrepreneur, um, first of all, having, the, having, having a vision and a capability to bring something new to market that's going to be compelling to a large enough customer base that you can build a business from it, you know, obviously that's, that's the start point. Um, and I'm going to come back to that, but having enough energy and passion and commitment um, to effectively dedicate yourself to, to making this market for what you think is important, um, it, that, that doesn't grow on trees. So not everyone can do this, but I, I'm a big believer that um, with the right approach, many, many people can be successful entrepreneurs. The... The, the the best entrepreneurs I work with, and, I, and I'm typically working with young entrepreneurs, not experienced entrepreneurs, um, is uh, they're very, very open to learning and guidance and, and they love being questioned about their business. And if the questions help them um, work out a better way for them to succeed, 
they that's that's just manna from heaven for those so they've got that great kind of curiosity and learning mindset and they're always always willing to um kind of be open and you know i was lucky enough early i'm going to divert from it because it's important i was lucky enough early in my career uh first first week as a manager i met um at this lady called sheena crane on a course and she did a role play with me and i like she gave me the best feedback i'd ever had and i said after she's like how do i get more of that and um i did not know who she was <laughs> turns out she was already coaching like the ceo bp and bt and all those guys but she was gracious enough to you know say hey come and come and see me at the this kind of manor house where they had their business and she took me on she explained what her fee structure was which there's no way i was paying that and there's no way that my company would pay that at the time and she agreed look i'm gonna i'll take you on as an experiment as it were and we worked together for 25 years. Um, it, it took me a couple of years to get to the point where my company was going to pay that. But um, the thing she taught me more than anything else was just relentless questioning. She would, she never gave me any answers. She just questioned me, questioned me, questioned me, questioned me. And so one of the things I'm trying to do with the people I work with is, is kind of learn from Sheena and ask great questions. And then occasionally it will be, you know, I got a call the other morning from the CEO of 501 Fund. It's like, I've got a deal I've got to put in front of this guy in 25 minutes. This is the framework. What do you think? He didn't want a question and answering technique <laughs> for me to say, this is what I would do right now. We had a very quick conversation. Um, it was a kind of high bandwidth, high value conversation, and it worked really, really well. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, for me, it's 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 about passion and commitment, but then it's about a relentless focus on how can you deliver something that a lot of customers will actually want in a way differentiate competition in a way that creates real value for both your customer, potentially the end customer, and for you. And so, if you can pull that off and keep working. Um, hard all kinds of things become possible at that point sounds good i i definitely agree with that I, how, how do you feel about grit and determination as well yeah look persistence is everything um and and being able to know when you're headed in the wrong direction and being able to pivot i think is uh extremely important and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a massive pivot but constantly readjusting maybe the pricing model, the, the marketing messaging and so on until you think you've really got something right is key. But yeah, you're, you're, I, I don't think anyone gets through um, building a business from scratch unless they're extremely persist, persistent and, you know, can take a lot of knocks because it's not easy. That's, the, I think that's, I think that's the thing that gets a lot of actually talented people as well, because it's just, there's going to be adversity and, yes. uh, yeah. and, there and is quite often, it, quite often it comes from places you would not imagine. Exactly. Um, and, and, and so you just have to be ready to, uh, for anything effectively. Mm -hmm.
I was going to ask about your, you mentioned uh, earlier that you you had a, you came from a military family and uh, the sort of yeah. the sort of character of upbringing and whether you had any entrepreneurial role models and whether you know a tough military childhood set you up for a tough tough approach to tough approach to life and business and you know sometimes if you're doing due diligence on the entrepreneurs do you look at their upbringing and think yeah oh, so, I was too privileged you know yeah I don't I don't want to pretend it was. To, I mean, effectively, the, the thing for me was we moved a lot. Um, I'd been to so many schools by the time I was 10, I barely could spell my name. And, and then I ended up being put in boarding school. So um, the, uh, what that meant, though, was, you know, I, I had to adapt. I, mean, I remember there's quite a few places where I changed schools every six months at a very, very early age. And it wasn't because I was being thrown out. Mm. Um, so you become very, very adaptable. I, I, when I was first in ICL, they did a, they did a survey on, they identified like 20 people who were kind of four or five years into the company as graduates who were moving quickly. And they were trying to find, okay, what do they have in common? And the one thing they identified was constant change as a kid. So it was uh, military kids, oil, oil company kids. It was, you know, um, you know, anyone whose family had caused them to move around a lot. That was the, uh, by the way, whether this is causation or correlation, who knows, but that was the single thing they found was this kind of adaptability to change. So that's probably what I got more than anything out of the, the military, as opposed to, you know, I was getting whipped every day or anything. Like that. <laughs> it wasn't the discipline. It was the moving yeah. around. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Frankly. Yeah. And, and, and were, were you comp do you look for competitiveness? Were you competitive? Do you play sport? And Yes. Very. Um, <laughs> my kids, my kids will tell you that I still am. Yeah, no. So I, I love sport. I'm, uh, I'm probably, more canny than competitive than I was as a youngster. But yeah, no, I think I think competition is a great, great thing. And we've encouraged all, all four of our kids to be heavily engaged in some kind of, um, you know, competitive um, sports or, or whatever. They all did something. And um, you learn a lot from competing. You learn a lot from failing. Um, and, you know, we've we've tried to raise them to be both, you know, competitive, but also, um, you know, have grace in losing and all those all those good things that, you know, I, I didn't think these things up. Um, they're kind of classic, but you try very hard to raise the kids like that. Did you let your kids win when you're playing games with your kids? Did you ever let them win or did was it more a question of teaching them how to fail because you beat them? <laughs> Um, maybe when they were babies, um, but no, pre pretty soon on, um, we, you know, we wanted the kids to, and this is, you know, I give great credit to my wife, Sally, for this too. We wanted the, um, the kids to understand what it took to win, um, and not at all costs, but, you know, to win fairly. So no, we were not, one of the things we found quite difficult when we first came to the U S was this notion where everyone gets a medal. I mean, that's just not... <laughs> That's just not how we operate in the UK. And, and so we have not encouraged that everyone gets a medal for participation type thing. Um, you know, we, we do try and isolate what does winning actually mean, and it's not just participating. Yes, it is interesting, and we don't have to digress too much, but it is a cultural thing as well. I, I In Poland, I think, where I live, and my wife is Polish, I think she's more inclined to let the kids win where I'm more inclined to win 
Yeah. yeah. Let them no, and let them. You know what? And yeah, they may cry a little that they lost that time, but yeah. that's like you know, I'm I'm totally with you on that. It's it's interesting how uh, how that works. Well, certainly, if if they're going to be entrepreneurs, no one's going to let them win. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. That's the the market is pretty unforgiving. And yes, yeah, and I, I think it's Gary Vaynerchuk who often points out that you get these privileged kids who've ever they've had everything going for them from wealthy parents, top school, Ivy League, yeah. and then suddenly they swan out with their MBA, and the market doesn't give a shit. Yeah, no, <laughs> and no, it's, it's a shattering experience. Um, yeah. Any, any sort of, if, if, if someone out here is listening to you thinking, hmm, so that guy is successful now, but he did 20 odd years of corporate life first. Yeah. Um, would you say your way was the right way? Or do, do, what do you say to someone who's younger, who's going to plow straight in and think, screw it, I want look, to start now? Yeah, no, look, for me, it was um, the you know, the reality is that I, because I had a military upbringing, I, I didn't have any real business insight. Everything I learned about business, I, um, I gained from experience and reading and observing and all the rest of it. And the reality is if I, if I had tried to be an entrepreneur straight out of school, I would have, I think, you know, I probably would have felt quite badly for a while. Um, and so then because we had kids early and we had four and six years. It just it was not realistic for me to say, you know, Sally was already being incredible looking after the kids and by the way, running her own business as it turns out. Um, but the idea that I would say, look, I'm going to put it all on the line for, for being an entrepreneur. Now we just made a decision early on it, we can, um, build the life we need in the corporate world. I can learn a lot and the time will come when I can do it. And the first day that it came that I could do it, I took it. So, and it worked for me, but by the way, the, the CEO of 501 fund, Johnny Powell, I mean, he's raised in an entrepreneurial family. He went to work in the family business immediately. You know, he's mid thirties. He's only ever been an entrepreneur. He's awesome. And he's, the rest of his family's the same. So, you know, it, it's horses for courses for, for, for the Powell family. They're just raised as entrepreneurs. Um, in my world, I, you know, it took me till I was 45 or whatever to, to get to that moment where I could, where I could make that and see if I could make that work. So it, it worked well for me. I wouldn't go back and change it. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's about it, Austin. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. Really yeah. appreciate it. Um, yeah. I, I learned, I, I, you know, I think you have a great story and, and it's interesting to hear how, uh, well, first of all, we have all kinds of different people uh, and all kinds of different stories. And I did, did, for me, this one is a bit different because you had that very strong um, corporate background. Yes. Then you've able to flip it into sort of what you're calling this like advisor role um, and actually just take what you learned there and actually transition and, you know, basically share that value with these young well, I mean yeah, I mean, I had to, to me, the, the, the initial transition was from corporate world to actually really being an entrepreneur in a pre-revenue startup. And, you know, you do that for five years, you learn a lot. Um, I, I, you know, if I think about what my life lessons are that I apply in this to this portfolio, um, you know, it's probably 60% of it came in the five years that I was uh, an entrepreneur and 40% of it before. Interesting. Than, yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, the things you learn when you, particularly when you, you have to, to go hand to mouth on cash, <laughs> 
changes everything. Yeah, I mean, that's like, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, like, I'm an entrepreneur, whatever, I started from nothing. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I was poor, like, literally, that was life. I mean, that is life. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, like, you don't have any money. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the reality of, and you're scraping by with, you know, that's really the magic is trying to get as much done with as little resources as possible. But, uh, but still, I'm, I, like it's that you have that high level, like, you know, those jobs that you did, whatever those corporate jobs that you had before. Yeah. I mean, that's like super, like knowing how to talk to clients and knowing what clients want. And, 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 you know, that's not, that's not easy for an entrepreneur. That takes, that takes a lot of time to learn that part. And this is where, you know, part of the Microsoft role was I, I was responsible for Microsoft's top hundred accounts. So I, I had right. the, the business responsibility and, the, and a set of kind of great client directors who ran them. But if, when you're Microsoft and you're dealing with, you know, Exxon or whoever, I mean, you're dealing at the top of the company. And so, yeah. and, and you're representing, you know, one of the most valuable companies in the world. Um, that's quite an interesting playing field on which to kind of build relationships and add value. And so that, that, you know, probably one of my favorite jobs before the entrepreneurial life, one of my favorite jobs was being a client manager and, and managing large clients. I mean, that is fantastic fun if you're working with great clients. And so that was phenomenal training for ultimately when you're then in an entrepreneurial place and you're trying to talk to a large corporation and say, hey, bet on, bet on this company that has no revenue and no track record. Right. It would be very difficult to do it without the experience of having exactly. kind of been trained in that, yeah, in, uh, in the large core. And I, I was going to sum up, sum up the, the value of relationship and one of the sort of universal lessons, even for people who aren't entrepreneurs listening to this, is you know the value of relationships in all aspects. But also, if you are a young entrepreneur, say you're a 23-year-old, you may need someone like Austin with a bit of grey hair in your sure. team to go out and do that representation to the big companies that, that would be cautious dealing. You know, the company may be young, but if the, the woman or man opposite you has got a is a bit more mature and yeah. that can By be way, so the, the, the great it's a great point so i've got you know i do kind of adopt young entrepreneurs that you know look like they can make a difference um i'm advising a couple of i'm going to call them kids right now who i think have tremendous potential in um you know building businesses that are green businesses that they're, they're they don't have any preconceptions of how you know historical business works. All they care about is building a business that is recycling rubbish, or it's you know using uh, crypto to kind of change the way energy is consumed, or whatever. And you know, I've had a couple of situations lately where they're trying to say persuade very very large corporations that they have credibility to kind of you know do something, even though they're early twenties. And um, I will get on the phone with the senior client and just say, hey, this is who I am. I, I want to just listen to what your needs are. And then I'm going to say, and here's why I think, you know, um, Connor or Monty or whatever um, is going to be able to bring real value to you in a way that someone with a ton of gray hair isn't. And yeah, you, so you can kind of give that um, extra dimension to very, very young and experienced entrepreneurs uh, and it, and that's that's a privilege to do. That's a lot of fun. Good. Well, I think it's been as Kimon said. This isn't you're, you're not 
entirely typical of the people we have here and that only goes to show that routes to an entrepreneurial career can be various. The, the other point I was going to make is that it's really important to learn how to sell and you can learn yes. how to, the best way to learn how to sell is to, to start selling and if you can yes. sell for a company that teaches you well with interesting competitive yes. products that, that's, uh, that's very good as well and very true. Sure all entrepreneurs need to be good at selling and your career suggests that that statement is I've sold true. a few things Yes. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Well, I, 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 well, from my point of view, I'd like to thank you very much for your yeah. time. And typically, Keeman does the does the wrap up. Okay. Yeah, my wrap Thanks. up's just yeah. my wrap up's going to be short. Thank you so much, Austin. It was a pleasure to meet you, and it, it sounds really cool. And honestly, and by the way, if somebody wants to get, if somebody's like super inspired and they're like, oh my god, I got to meet this guy. Is there like, is it Twitter? Is it LinkedIn? How do they? How do they... LinkedIn is LinkedIn is the easiest way. Yeah. Okay. Because okay, there's only one Austin Mullinger on LinkedIn, as okay. it turns out. It's just Hard to weird, believe. <laughs> it's a weird name, but yeah, so that's how. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll ask you to send over any links to the companies you referred to in that coach. Um, oh, yeah, sure. one last, sorry, I'm going to yeah. break a rule. I want to ask you, you met Steve Ballmer and there's, there are amazing videos of him behaving like a maniac online. Is he, oh. is, is he as crazy in real life as he seems in his media persona? Uh, by the way, I'm a Steve fan. I mean, that guy, uh, um, he didn't spend so much time worrying about what Wall Street thinks, but you know, as a guy who is very smart, very energetic, gave it everything. And I think built a lot of the platform that Satya, who's now CEO, who is just obviously been incredible, has taken advantage of. And I think Satya would give um, Steve a lot of credit. Um, yes, yeah, Steve is, can be great. He's one of the most human beings you're ever going to meet. And now that passion is going particularly into the, the Clippers, the basketball team. Um, I learned a lot from Steve. So, you know, you, you see a lot of stuff on the internet that kind of makes fun of his passion. But um, I think that he was responsible for a tremendous amount of the growth in the company. And most of the people that I work with absolutely adored him. And that's actually the most important thing. I, I value that more than uh, any YouTube clips, Richard. <laughs> yeah. I will tell you a funny story. When I was, my final interview was with Steve. And it was in, you know, his office. Um, I was on, I don't know, some kind of chair of some sort, and Steve was on the sofa. And as we were talking, he was sliding lower and lower and lower down the sofa. And at the end, his head was on the sofa, but he's basically like on the floor. I mean, he's still, you know, passionate and talking about what needs to happen to the sales culture and all the rest of it. Um, but I never had an interview like that before or since. <laughs> So, he, <laughs> what was he doing? He was trying to check. Was it a test just, of some sort? <laughs> no, he was just relaxed, you know. Um, and maybe I don't know. You know, it, it, at the end, he was essentially sitting on the floor interviewing me, and I was like, "Okay, this is unlike anything I've ever had before." But um, you know, it was part of. It was all part of what compelled me to say, "Okay, let's do this." Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks again for everything. It was really right. nice. To, it was really nice to hear yeah. your story. Okay. Thanks, guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Take care.